0: Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Let us now praise famous men. That'll be the theme of this week's 25th anniversary celebration of the Good Friday Agreement, the political document that ended the Troubles, the near-three-decade-long, low-grade civil war in Northern Ireland. But in this podcast, I'm going to praise a woman who should be more famous. The woman who, based on my experience reporting every turn, twist, and stall in the Good Friday negotiations for America's National Public Radio, did more to bring them to a successful conclusion than anybody else. Marjorie Moe Molum, Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, appointed by Prime Minister Tony Blair after Labour's landslide victory in May 1997. In less than a year, she managed to cut the several Gordian knots that had kept the process in limbo, and then, with a final dramatic flourish, she solved the last remaining problem. What to do with the hundreds of prisoners from both the Catholic and the Protestant communities, Republican and Loyalist paramilitaries, convicted of crimes related to the troubles and still serving their sentences? And I'll come back to that in a bit, but first, a potted summary of the years that led up to the Good Friday Agreement, years in which, it seemed, I spent more time in Ireland than I did in London. By the early 1990s, it was clear to the Irish Republican movement that the IRA's armed struggle for a united Ireland was a dead end sinn fein the political wing of the movement was led by jerry adams who had been holding secret talks with john hume leader of the sdlp a moderate nationalist party seeking the same goal a united ireland but by electoral politics In the supercharged beginning of the Troubles in the late 60s, Hume, from Derry, had been called a traitor and faced violence from Republicans. But starting in the late 80s, he and Adams thought through what a political settlement might look like that would satisfy nationalists and Republicans. Through back channels, they got their ideas to the British and Irish governments. By 1992, there were conversations going on in secret. And this is where I entered the story. I was working for NPR in the London Bureau, and the Irish story became my beat. There was generational change happening in Irish politics. The state was becoming more modern, and less of a de facto Catholic theocracy. Politicians who, like me, had started university in the late 60s, were determined to help bring the conflict in the North to a close, and were open to hearing of the Hume-Adams plans. In 1993, I interviewed the newly elected Irish Foreign Minister, Dick Spring, born the same year I was. He told me that his aspiration was not a united Ireland, but something achievable, an Ireland in which the border between North and South, United Kingdom, Province, and Republic of Ireland meant nothing, seemed a reasonable goal for the next phase in the evolution of his country. Had Spring found anyone on the Unionist or Protestant side in Northern Ireland to whom he could talk? He covered my microphone. No, he said emphatically. In America, the nationalist, Republican, the Catholic side in the conflict was very well known. But the Protestant community Spring had yet to crack was unknown, and so I decided to focus my reporting on working-class Protestants, the Loyalists who provided the paramilitaries who engaged in murder and mayhem against the Catholic community. That summer, I marched in formation with the Shankill Road Orange Lodge on the 12th of July, the big celebration of Loyalism, and tried to get inside their worldview. I met men who had been in paramilitary groups, and some who had done years in prison for terrorist offenses and murdering Catholics. I learned about the mirror-image nature of Protestant paramilitarism and the IRA. Three months after I marched with the Shankill Road Lodge, the IRA set off a bomb in a fish-and-chip shop on the Shankill, the symbolic main street of loyalism. It was Saturday lunchtime. People were queued up at the chippy for some post-shopping lunch. Upstairs, a meeting of the paramilitary Ulster Defense Association was due to take place, but the bomb went off early, killing the bomber and nine others in the shop, including two children. I flew back to Belfast for the funerals in both communities. As I arrived at one of the Loyalist ones, I saw a group of angry men bent on violence running the other way and jumping into their cars. I asked someone, what's going on? He said, the IRA have hijacked one of the hearses. An absurd idea, but in the atmosphere of seething hatred, any rumor that provided an excuse for revenge violence was going to cause action. I then went across town and recorded the funeral of the bomber. Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness of the IRA helped carry the coffin, it seemed on that day that this low-level civil conflict would have no end. Ever. Yet within a month, the Observer newspaper published the news that the British government was holding secret talks with Sinn Féin, the fruit of the Hugh Adams conversations. And 11 months later, the IRA announced its ceasefire, the British government's confidence-building precondition for moving the process forward that day i flew back to belfast and in a back room of a sinn fein party building on the springfield road i interviewed martin mcginnis a man of fearsome reputation as an ira commander now a new phase of his and his organization's life was opening up and he seemed oddly vulnerable He was another person, born the same year I was, and as I asked him boilerplate questions, Mrs. Daily Journalism, no time to get deep into political philosophy, to which he gave boilerplate answers, I kept thinking about that. What was I doing in 1972, graduating from college? What was he doing that year, acting as second in command of the provisional IRA on Bloody Sunday when 14 Catholics in Derry were shot dead by the British Army? When the interview was over, McGuinness asked, How do you think we're doing? I think he meant handling the world's media, which he was not used to, and which had descended on Belfast that day. I told him I thought he was doing all right. But after the ceasefire, the process was becalmed. The thing to remember is that the process leading up to the Good Friday Agreement was a political process, not a peace process. Peace might come out of a political agreement, but this was not surrender or truce negotiations. It was about creating a new political settlement for Northern Ireland in which the possibility of the North leaving the United Kingdom and joining the Republic of Ireland could be a possibility in the future. Anyway, politics is time-consuming and uncertain. Britain's government at this moment was run by the Conservatives and Prime Minister John Major. The Tories were extremely cautious in dealing with Adams and McGinnis. They didn't just have skin in the game, they had real blood. The IRA had nearly blown up Margaret Thatcher at the Conservative Party conference in Brighton in 1984. Four people had been killed. Other Conservatives had been murdered over the years, including Ian Gow, who had shepherded Major's rise in the party. Gow was blown up by a car bomb at his home a few months before Major took over from Thatcher. Three years went by with talks, but very little movement. Then Blair was elected, and Mo Mollum was sent to Northern Ireland, and the process reignited. The outline of the deal was largely accepted by the British and Irish governments. Blair was close to President Bill Clinton, in a way Major never was, and engaged him in the process, but the Unionist politicians used to running the show needed to be kowtowed to. Mo Mollum just a year older than I, was not a person for kissing asses, but she was a person for using humor to puncture pomposity and perfectly capable of absorbing the rage of firebrands like the Reverend Ian Paisley of the Democratic Unionist Party. She endured his ranting, and that's the right word, by the way. He was a religious ranter out of the 17th century, and I speak from personal experience. He yelled at me, more than once and pushed things along but there was a final sticking point and now we come back to the prisoners the May's prison infamous was full of prisoners from both communities convicted of various levels of terror offenses what would happen to them if there was a new deal It's important to remember that the overwhelming majority of those who got involved in the IRA, or UDA, or UVF, or any of the other paramilitary groups, regarded themselves as political prisoners. They were engaged in war, not terror. One of the key moments of the Troubles was in 1981, when IRA man Bobby Sands starved himself to death to get recognition as a political prisoner, not a criminal. What was to become of these men? with a new political settlement, should they be released. Their crimes had been committed within the framework of the old one. The IRA maintained discipline throughout the negotiations with Adams and McGuinness, participants in the talks. But the loyalist paramilitaries needed to be convinced to back the process. And who was their interlocutor in negotiations? The unionist politicians publicly wanted nothing to do with them. Yet without the commitment from the paramilitaries on the Protestant side to stop violence, any agreement was worthless. Mo decided to meet the Loyalist prisoners where they lived, and traveled to the maze to talk to them. No one wanted her to do it. Not the civil servants who advised her, not Tony Blair, and certainly not the leaders of the Unionist parties. But Molum understood there was no chance of success, no chance to reach a political agreement whose by-product would be peace, without winning the approval of the prisoners. And so she went, and won their approval. The sweetener? Early release from their sentences. And a quarter of a century later, I still think that was the action that broke the logjam. She went to the maze on January 10th. Ninety days later, the Good Friday Agreement was signed. Oh, And did I tell you she did this while suffering from a brain tumor and undergoing chemotherapy? She lost her hair, as often happens, and her wig itched terribly. It was very uncomfortable uh, while she was having talks, and she would lift it and scratch her scalp. Legend has it that at one particularly fraught session with unionist leaders, she took off the wig and flung it at them across the room. If you can keep your head even without hair, when all around you others are losing theirs." Former Senator George Mitchell was Bill Clinton's envoy to the talks. He wasn't always in Belfast. He had started a new family and needed to make money, and sat on a lot of corporate boards, and so was at business meetings in the U.S. more than he was in Belfast. But after Molum had got the prisoners' approval for the agreement, Mitchell put a clock on negotiations for the final commas and semicolons to be put in place midnight on Good Friday, April 10, 1998. Once more, the world's press descended on Belfast. The talks took place in castle buildings on the grounds of Stormont, home of Northern Ireland's Parliament. Just outside, two enormous marquees were erected for reporters to file from. Around midnight, we were told the talks had been extended. I was scheduled to do a live telephone insert to All Things Considered, NPR's evening news show. As I went on the air, Ian Paisley burst into the press tent and began a rant about the betrayal of the good people of Ulster. I told the presenter what was happening and then just held the phone up so American listeners could have the full Paisley experience. Then I grabbed a cab and went back to the center of town to catch a few hours sleep. Around 6 a.m. I went back up to Stormont. Still nothing the only activity was the caterers hired by the british government packing up they had only been contracted to provide food through thursday they left behind a couple of coffee urns and that was it hours passed no word from inside the office building not even spin doctors coming to update us hunger gnawing no food anywhere A couple of American colleagues, Bill Glauber of the Baltimore Sun and Barry Hillenbrand of Time Magazine and I are standing around discussing whether to chance a walk to McDonald's a mile and a half away. There and back could take at least an hour, and what would happen if the talks end? We'd miss the moment. It's freezing cold, and the tang of snow coming is in the air. April really is the cruelest month in Ulster, but we decided to risk it. On our way out of the press enclosure, we asked the policeman on the gate if there's any place closer. And he looks around and then says, well, if you don't tell the others, the staff canteen around the back is open. They'll serve you. We walked into an annex of castle buildings, warm and smelling like a school cafeteria. The place had opened specially to serve the civil servants working on the negotiations, and the menu was limited. Fish and chips. That was all. Well, it was Good Friday, after all. We ate, gossiped about whether the talks would succeed, and tried to warm up. Then we started back to the unheated press tent, and as we were leaving, who should be coming in but Mo Molum, guiding Tony Blair. The Prime Minister looked disheveled, like an undergraduate who had pulled an all-nighter before a big exam. He saw us, and in his face there was a beam of recognition. We had attended press events at Downing Street, and in his sleepless state, You could see he was trying to figure out why these faces he had seen on people he didn't really know were there in castle buildings at this moment. Either Bill or Barry asked the obvious question, "'How are things going?' And he started to answer, "'Not well.' And he was getting ready to explain the latest sticking point when Mo, who knew exactly who I was because she was very available to the press, took the befuddled Blair by the elbow and steered him away from us quickly." Glauber, who was a sports writer on secondment to the Baltimore Sun's foreign desk, shouted out a cheery, good luck, Tony, and Blair turned and smiled back. In later histories of that day, it seems likely that at that moment he was heading to a private room to call the White House and ask Clinton to speak with David Trimble, head of the Ulster Unionist Party and the de facto leader of the Unionist delegation, to push him past his last doubts and sign up to the new political settlement, which he did an hour or so later. By then, we were all pressed up against the police line set up at the entrance to Castle Buildings. Geoffrey Donaldson, Trimble's top aide, stormed past me as the talks broke up. His face mottled red with fury at what he saw as the betrayal of the Unionist cause. I filed and fled Belfast. I'd been stuck in Ireland on more than one Easter weekend in the previous five years. In those days, they really rolled up the sidewalks for the holiday. A month later, per the terms of the agreement... Plebiscites were held on both sides of the Irish border to ratify it. It was passed overwhelmingly. I spent a couple of weeks beforehand doing features on the place. The atmosphere was so positive, a complete change from the usual morose fatalism that infected people in the north. Driving around, I could relax and enjoy the beauty of the place. It really is a very pretty part of the world. Then 2 months later I was driving in London with my wife and her nieces and put on the 5 p.m. BBC news as I always did in those days and heard the first reports of the oma bombing 29 people were dead more than 200 injured the next morning I was back in the north and I stayed through until the first funeral that of Avril Monahan her 18 month old daughter and her mother Avril was eight months pregnant, and the unborn child did not survive the blast either. Four members, single family. The press was kept in an enclosure, but I talked my way past the police and joined the overflow of mourners outside St. McCartan's Church, deep in the Tyrone countryside. I discreetly recorded the mass, and I remember catching a moment of silence in the service that was broken by the wail of one of Avril's surviving children that sound was in my story, more powerful than any word spoken. When it came time to give the sign of peace, I shook hands with those around me and knew I was saying goodbye. I've never been back to the North again. Momola wasn't there much longer either. She had made a lot of enemies among the Unionist leadership when she went to the maze. They never forgave her for that, it forced the pace that led to the agreement, and to be honest, I think many of those leaders hoped to string out the talks for much longer, possibly forever. To this day, delay is their primary political tactic. The men, they were all men, did what they could to undermine Molam, and she was replaced the following year. And if rumors can be trusted, up to a point, Tony Blair didn't make the decision reluctantly. He thought Mo might be getting too much credit for a major achievement of his government. But also, he was angry she had withheld the truth about her tumor from him. She insisted it was benign. It wasn't. And in the end, it killed her. Mo visit to the maze pushed the political process in Northern Ireland almost to the finish, but it was also a real-world teaching of a terrible truth. In conflict resolution, you can have justice or you can have peace, but you very rarely can have both. In the two years after the Good Friday Agreement, hundreds of prisoners were released from the maze, as Mo promised. The families of their victims did not get justice for the loss of their loved ones, but Northern Ireland, more or less, got the peace the political process aimed for. And if Moe hadn't ignored virtually everyone with authority to make that journey and essentially cut that deal, I doubt Northern Ireland would have peace. And having met too many people in too many countries who have lost loved ones to terror, I'm not sure there is any just punishment for those crimes possible. Better to take peace and forgive the peacemakers for the deals they cut and remember them on important anniversaries. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. Please visit the website www.goldfarbpod.com or my SoundCloud page and make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.